Um, we've been in a series prior to this one called Give Your Life Away. Uh, and we kind of learned, or at least tried to wrestle with this idea that it's never really convenient. It doesn't really sound like fun um, to give your life away. But in giving your life away, we actually find it. It's actually the only way to true and lasting happiness is, is by laying down our life. Um, and so today in, in kind of this series that we're doing, which is kind of called After You Believe, after you kind of take your step and say, I'm all in, um, we really want to kind of go back to something pretty basic and, and talk about obedience. And the idea is obedience leads to blessing. O- obedience precedes blessing. We know that, we all know this. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a kid going to a, a dentist. You know, it's this thing right here is going to make you happy in the long run. But the kid never really grabs hold of that, doesn't really like that. And so we're kind of like that. I could talk about obedience in that in the long run, it's going to be to your greatest happiness. But the reality is, it just doesn't sound like fun. It's not a happy word. And so in church or, or in the Christian world, what we can tend to do is stop talking about the obedience part and just try to find language to talk about the blessing part so that we can have it now, so that it can be fun, so that it can be easy. But the reality is, is that obedience precedes blessing. So I want to kind of take us back to the beginning and just ground this biblically. And so I've got a, a bunch of verses we're going to kind of walk through um, scripturally here and just try and really, really ground this idea that obedience is a big deal uh, and it precedes, it goes before blessing. Starting in Exodus chapter 19, verse, verses 4 and 6, this is a, a huge call where God basically claims the nation of Israel. They've come out of Egypt, uh, they're now in the desert, and God is really forming for himself his people, and he's saying what they're going to be, what they're supposed to be. And God says to, to Moses, this is what you're supposed to say, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Everything already belongs to me. Okay, It's already mine. I already have a relationship with it. I already have whatever. But if you obey me and if you keep my covenants, then you will be exalted. You will be blessed. You will be for me this this nation of priests, this holy nation. We go to Isaiah next, Isaiah 119, and and we've fast-forwarded a long way because the nation of Israel went from getting this, obeying it, to forgetting it. And now Isaiah comes back and reminds them and says, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. God is trying to remind them again that, look, you've, you've wanted me to be with you and to exalt you and to treat you as a treasured possession, but you've forgotten the, the dynamics of this relationship. You've forgotten my covenant. You've forgotten to obey me. You've forgotten obedience. So we jump forward all the way now to the New Testament, and in 1 Peter 1.14, Peter says this, As uh, obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and, ever, and slander of every, every kind. And like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
As obedient children, he says to now not just the Jewish uh, people, but Jewish Christian and Greek Christians, Peter's writing them and saying, look, as obedient children, um, no longer ignorant, you belong to God, but you're far off, you don't understand him, but, but as obedient children, those that understand him, this is how you're supposed to grow up in your salvation. This is how you're supposed to mature. This is what you're supposed to do. And then just skipping down a little bit, it's fascinating what Peter, who was a, was a um, a Jew himself who knew the law, who knew scripture, he grabs that verse in Exodus we just read and he recommissions it now for these Christian people, these Jewish Christians and Greek Christians. And he says this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the exact same language that God used in Exodus for his people people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've been brought in, all of us, we've, been, uh, we've received mercy, which means we've basically been brought into this relationship where God is a father. Um, fathers never stop loving their kids. This isn't a legalistic earn the love of God or earn the relationship of God. It's, it's, it's not that I'm, I go up and down in my love for my kids, but I still expect them to be obedient. I, st- I still expect them to, to mature. That's my desire. I labor towards that. I work toward that. I, I plead with my kids. I try and give them logic to help them understand. I love them, yes, but I need them. I want them. I, I fight for them to be obedient and to grow up and to mature so that they can attain the fullness of what it means to be a part of my family, to be a, a, a human, to be one of God's children. And, and, and we get the same kind of pleading here. It's you belong to God. He is your father. You've received mercy. You've tasted that he is good. Now grow up in that. Even Jesus, it's kind of funny. We, we, we really do forget this idea of obedience. And this is a classic example for me. The last words of Christ in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And we always refer to this as the Great Commission. Which means that right off the bat, This whole chunk of scripture to us is all about this commission to go and make more Christians. And and it's not that it doesn't say that, but listen to the whole thing in context. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Obedience is so unglamorous. It's, it's so hard. It's so difficult to do something with immediately. It's so, um, it's so unattractive. And it's right here that Jesus says, teach people, teach my my people to obey everything that I've taught, that I've commanded. What are those things? Um, The fun thing, I think, is when we look for obedience, we look for one little rule. I think in Jesus' ministry and Jesus' teaching, what we see is something different. You see patterns and themes that he comes back to 
over and over and over again. Uh, we all do that. With your kids, you do that. I do that teaching up here. The things that matter the most become themes that you, you begin to hear over and over and over again. And what do we hear over and over and over again in Jesus' life and ministry? The command to love. Uh, pleading with people to have faith, to believe, to trust. Uh, pleading with them to have humility, to to not see themselves as big, but as God is big, and, and to, to tuck up underneath that. Um, to give to the poor, to help the poor, to serve the poor. Jesus commands these things, and he did it over and over again in his ministry, and now he says, teach everyone to obey everything I have commanded. It's really interesting. Um, when we ask things of God, we can tend to, and we talked a little bit about this last week, we can tend to make him a servant to our desires. And we, we ask him to serve the desires that we have. The interesting thing in Jesus' last week was he washed the feet of his disciples, which in that culture was a very humbling thing. Dirty feet sitting around the table it was the job of a servant. And Jesus took put on the clothing of a servant, washed their feet, and, and tried to teach them a lesson and said, look, um, what's that game again? Uh, we were talking about this before the service. We're the bar and you go underneath the bar. Limbo. <laughs> Jesus is taking that bar and he's saying, look, here, here's where the bar is. And you don't get to come above it because, see, I'm your master. I'm your Lord. I'm above you, and this is where I'm putting the bar. So since you're below me, you don't get to come higher than this. And since I served you, you now have to serve others. And it does us well to realize when we ask things of God that he also has already asked things of us. So when we come to ask things of God, it's, it's not as God serve my desires. It, it's a real humble, meek thing where we come and realize that God is up here and he has already asked us to be servants and to obey. And as servants and as those who, who seek to obey, labor to obey, don't always get it right, but just are weak in that. But our desire and our heart, we come and we, we present our requests and we, we ask. But it's, it's as servants because it does us well to remember when we ask things of God that he has already asked things of us as well. Um, maybe that's why it says in, in James that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous man, someone that labors, righteous man, righteous woman, who labors, who values, who desires to, to, to seek God, to please God, to obey God, to serve others, to remain humble, that the righteous person um, has effective and powerful prayer. And maybe it does us good to understand that God has selective hearing. God has selective hearing. When we go to ask God, we should understand he's already asked things of us as well. Obedience is hard. 
We, we don't like to think of it. We like to be able to come the easy road, present ourselves before God and, and, and get help um, without ever really having to tackle the hard side. I've read this quote before, but I love it. It's from the, the Puritan Samuel Rutherford. And uh, Rutherford says this, it's going to be on the screen, but he says this, it is in a manner as natural to us to leap when we see the new Jerusalem as to laugh when we are tickled. When we see the hope, when we see the grand vision, when we see the goodness, it's natural for us to leap just like we laugh when we're tickled. Joy is not under command or at our nod when Christ kisseth. But oh, how many of us would have Christ divided into two halves that we may take the half of him only we take his office, Jesus and salvation, but Lord is a cumbersome word. And to obey and work out our own salvation and to perfect holiness is the cumbersome and stormy north side of Christ. In that, we eschew and shift. Rutherford began this with a sentence. He opened it this way. He said, sanctification and mortification of our lusts are the hardest part of Christianity. After you believe, there's a work, there's a hard work of growing up, of maturing, of, of learning obedience, of repatterning our habits and our behaviors. We don't want that half. We want the half that blesses. We want cheap grace rather than costly grace. But if we're really going to understand discipleship, if we're really going to understand what it means to be Christians, we have to understand this idea that obedience precedes the blessings. Just as faith comes before sight, obedience comes before blessing. Now, I want to take it one step further. In this series, we've named uh, the titles after different books that I think, at least in my life, have been instrumental in, in understanding this, this Christian life, this life of discipleship. And there's a book by St. John of the Cross, and a Catholic mystic back in the um, like 1500s, 1600s. And he wrote this book, The Dark Night of the Soul. And what he argued was that early on in the Christian faith, it is the blessings, it is the, the joys, it is the sweet things that drives our obedience and our, our movement toward God. We go to God, we keep coming back to God because of this joy, because of the happiness, because of the blessing. As we obey, there's a blessing and it just kind of drives the whole thing. And what John of the Cross started to talk about, he started to talk about the dark night of the soul. And he says it's this period in the, the maturation of a believer when the joys are no longer there and it refines your obedience because your obedience isn't so much tied to the, the, the sweet stuff anymore, the joy. It's tied to just simply God and our delight in God or our delight in obedience, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the darkness, no matter what, um, what's going on or, or what we lack or what we need. And so this would, would say that obedience, in this sense, becomes the blessing. We talked about obedience um, comes before blessing. And then at some point, Obedience itself becomes the blessing. The spiritual leads to the material. 
uh, immature faith. Um, the spiritual is the delight and the desire in this sense. So a couple verses here, starting in Nehemiah. Listen to Nehemiah, this man with maturity that then goes to the king, um, feeling called and on a mission by God to go and help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He says this in his prayer, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to, to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Their delight is no longer in the blessing. The delight is in God himself. In Psalm 119, in the whole of Psalm 119, there's verses like this. It says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. It's a fascinating thing in the book of Psalms that we begin to realize that there's a relationship, there's, there's a knowledge of God and a being with God, and that that in and of itself, regardless of the blessings, regardless of the material things, that, that the spiritual sustains and is sufficient. Even in Psalm 23, we, we begin by looking at God as a, a shepherd and, and he takes care of these sheep. And then it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I go through this place where there is no joy and it is all dark, I'll not be afraid because you are with me. And so there's this part and we see it all throughout scripture where even when the circumstantial, even when the material becomes so dark, so difficult, so unfun there's a joy to the believer the mature believer in just anchoring themselves in God and so God is is the source of our spiritual joy our relational joy our emotional joy um, even if materially there's nothing going on in our life this is why the prosperity gospel if you've ever heard that phrase misses it because it, it, it camps on an immature faith that thinks obedience always and only precedes blessing. And so it just says, do these things, obey these things, and God is just going to keep doling it out on you. And you're going to be rich and you're going to drive Bentleys because um, you have a better prayer life than anybody else. And it completely misses that God doesn't always promise easiness. And in some sense, if you're going to mature and not just grow up to be a spoiled brat, there's going to be times where you learn difficult things and hard things. And there's going to be dark nights of the soul. And the prosperity gospel doesn't understand that for the true believer, the true disciple, the mature disciple, that even if there isn't circumstantial or material, there's a joy, there's a delight that comes in just the law of God, of being with God um, emotionally and relationally. That obedience, in some sense, becomes the delight. Just being with God uh, and not having a, a separation of shame or, or things that break the relationship, but being obedient so that we're in this relationship, that becomes the joy. Philippians 2.8, we kind of, let me just read it. If you guys have your Bible, why don't you turn there. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Paul, in this famous kind of inspirational call to discipleship, says this, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, 
having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Be mature. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of, each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This whole series that we did on Give Your Life Away, I mean, I think it's really easy to go, ah, it's a little, that's a little over the top. Look, I mean, <laughs> I'm just a person. I'm just a Christian. I believe that Jesus was the Son of God, whatever. But, I mean, let's be practical here. Let's not be dramatic, you know, give your life away, die to yourself, whatever. That's just a little laying it on thick. Um, God wouldn't require that. The Bible wouldn't actually believe that we could, like, go to that level. That's, that's kind of silly. I mean, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever seen people feel like, I think it's natural. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one. I mean, I've, I, I look for ways out every day. Well, I, I, I mean, I had a bad morning. I didn't sleep good, so that really just doesn't apply today. Um, I mean, I look for ways out all the time. There are none. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Well, I can, I can handle that. I can, I can have an attitude like Jesus, maybe, you know. What, is, what does Paul mean by that? He goes on to define it here. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, giving his life away, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But there's still a blessing that comes after obedience. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, does that, I mean, if we're going to just be real and not be like super spiritual and, and act all religious, I mean, if we're just going to be honest with each other, um, I, I mean, that just makes me want to pack up and leave. Like, really? Like, I don't know what to do with that. I should be just like Christ. I should have that same attitude. And, and, and then you're going to list a bunch of things and say, Jesus became obedient unto death. Yeah, okay. You just lost me there. I mean, just, I'm, <laughs> I'm out. But that's scripture. Do we really have faith enough in God to believe that if we give it all away, that we're not left with nothing? That in some sense we've put everything in the hands of, of somebody who is so much more trustworthy and reliable to give back to us everything we need, everything we'd ever hope for. I mean, the, the concept of faith in Scripture is so scary and big that when, when Jesus talks to the man and says, do you believe? And he says, yeah, I believe, but help my unbelief. He's, I, got, I got this much for you, Jesus, but man, I, you got you to gotta help me with the rest. And Jesus loved that, said this man has faith. And then Jesus says to his disciples later, he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, which in those days was believed to be the smallest seed. If Jesus is like, man, 
faith is, you guys have no idea how big faith is. Start here. Just, just start trying to do your best. Start walking, start obeying. Um, and then I'll help you with the rest. But the category of faith, what faith really demands, faith when it's this big is obedient unto death. We just got to start here. Obedience becomes the blessing. We delight in God so much that whether there's a material or circumstantial blessing in this life coming or not, we still follow him because we trust him. So I want everyone to say this real quick. Obedience comes before blessing. Obedience becomes the blessing. And now I'm going to do something we don't normally do. The rest of the sermon is going to be application. (laughs) Um, So here you go, three things. The first thing I think we need to do if we're going to really understand this or develop this kind of of maturity is is, uh, we've got to ask the right questions, number one. We've got to ask the right questions. We typically start with our felt needs, which are more on the surface, rather than go to our real needs, which are deeper. We typically start with our felt needs, which are material or circumstantial or kind of right in the now, the urgent, then start with our deeper needs. We go for band-aids rather than the cure. You know, the Latin word crux uh, is is kind of the word that's in cross um, and in crucifixion, and and the definition is actually torment or difficult moment. There's a crux, means there's a, there's a, a moment where there's torment, there's difficulty. Do we ask the right questions? Do we go after real needs, realizing that there's going to be times when our felt life, how we experience things, isn't always going to be the way we'd want it? Isn't always going to be um, nice or happy or perfect or comfortable? Are we willing to forego comfort to deal with the real things? I remember Eugene Peterson one time was reading a book and he was talking about as a pastor for all these years, he, he had to come into his church and not answer the felt needs of his congregation, but to try to speak to their real needs. He said it was a discipline as a pastor that he had to develop. That his job wasn't to just scratch the itches, what the itching ears want to hear is the way Paul called it, but to go deeper and to deal with the real needs. Otherwise, in some sense, it was an irresponsibility. Do we ask the right questions? Um, we think that when things are difficult, it means that our Christianity must not be working, that, that God is broke or something, like <laughs> something just went wrong, like the little toy car that you wind up isn't going the way it's supposed to. My life isn't going the way I wound it up to go. Something must be wrong. My God must be broke. Um, difficulty, I think, always confuses us. I mean, think about that. When we run into real difficulty, when, when you lost your house, or when you declared bankruptcy, or when you lost the loved one, or when you heard from the doctor. Um, It always confuses us because we never go forward in life seeking it. We never really expect it. In life, it's very natural for us to seek comfort, to seek pleasure. I mean, it's a homing beacon that we, we just seek good we don't seek difficulty. And so as we're trying to find what's best and, and what fulfills us the most, what, what makes us significant or satisfies, and then all of a sudden we land on difficulty, 
it always confuses us. It always comes unexpectedly. And what we do with that is a really big deal. So the first thing here is, do we ask the right questions? Do we not immediately get angry with God because of what that's going to do to our, our sense of happiness and well-being? Do we ask the question, God, in this moment, in this closing chapter of my life, in whatever this is, what really am I supposed to do with that? Um, if you're not going to take it away, what am I supposed to do with it? How am I supposed to react? How am I supposed to live within this? Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. It's kind of a, another one of these famous passages. He talks about having this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is, but you guys all know like when you have a nagging, kind of a nagging issue, it's just, it just bugs you. You know what I mean? Like it's just a burn to the saddle. It just gets at you. And Paul's talking about this nagging thorn in his flesh that he had. And he says this, he says, three times, this is uh, chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. It says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it, this thorn, away from me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul continues, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's kind of the famous part. We, we throw that around a lot. Hey, when I'm weak, then I am strong. When, when I'm weak, God can do something in me, hold me up, and there's strength in that. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What's fascinating to me is that in the middle of... Corinthians here, you haven't seen red letters. You know, if you have a Bible that's got Jesus' words in red letters, you haven't seen red letters in a very, very long time when you hit 2 Corinthians. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of chapter 12, you see red letters. This is a a quote. He said to me, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We've got to ask the right questions of God. We can't always come to to, to God asking him to fix our problems. We've got to come to God and be willing after three times to say, maybe your desire, God, isn't to fix this. So what is your desire? How do you want to work through this weakness? Because you yourself have said, it's in scripture, that your grace is sufficient. That even in the dark night, that that my delight is you, not just the circumstances, not just the blessing, that, that your grace is sufficient for me and your power can be made perfect in my weakness. We gotta walk so that if difficulty surprises us, at some point, we don't try and get out from underneath it. We just face it and say, God, in the midst of this, what should we do? How should we act? It's fascinating to me that Paul says he prayed three times, but he lived with it every day for a very long time. He had this thing that was, was, was nagging at him, and he lived with it every day for a very long time. How many times did he pray? It means he understood something, I think, that we don't think about very often. And what Paul understood was God heard him the first time. 
Uh, I think if we understand that God hears us the first time, it will help us at some point to stop asking the wrong questions and to start asking the right questions. God, let me change where I'm going with my questions because it seems like maybe there's something else you're going to do here than, than what my presenting problem is, what my presenting desire is. We've got to learn to ask the right questions just briefly here. It's what, um, it's what fasting is all about. I don't know if you've ever fasted or not. Fasting, you know, typically in our minds is, is going without food or, or drink other than water uh, for a period of time. You could extend that and, and say in some sense fasting could go with TV or it could go with something else that you give up for a period of time that's difficult to give up. But if we're just taking it in the classic sense of food, food and drink, there's a tendency, I think, when we fast to miss the deeper reality going on there. And we think it's a, it's a test of the will. It's like we're, we're doing the staring game with, with life and seeing, you know, and trying to prove to life that it's going to blink before we blink, you know? Like, I'm going to beat you, my appetite, and, and how things normally go, the normal rhythm of a day. I, I can keep my eyes open longer than you. And we kind of get this sense that fasting is this, this duty-bound thing where we're, we're doing it by force of will. And, that, and that's why nobody fasts. Because <laughs> we're like, why? What does that prove? <laughs> I, I don't need to do that. You know, it's, so at the end of the day, I proved that I, I could go a day without food. Like, okay, I'll just skip all that and say, I bet I, if I tried, I could go a day without food. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it it's kind of just doesn't have a reason in it. There's a book uh, called A Hunger for God by John Piper. He wrote this whole book about fasting. Absolutely, absolutely paradigm-altering kind of a book, at least with regard to fasting. What Piper coaches you to do, and he tries to give a theology of fasting, he just says, look, when you come to the table and you're denying your body food, and you come sit at that table and the aroma hits your, your nose and, and you begin to salivate, you begin to, your desires get heightened, your, your stomach is growling and, and you begin to be aware of how strong that desire is, that craving, that hunger for that food is, okay? In that moment of, of desire for this that is so guttural, so strong, so whatever, he goes, in that moment you look at that and you say to God, more than this, God, I desire you. This, this material thing that's pulling at me is so strong and I know what desire is. Desire is just locking me into this. this is, I'm being consumed with this. My body is, is being altered because of, of the smell and because of the hunger. And more than this, I desire you, God. It's, it's not a test of the will. It's not duty. It's, it's beginning to remind myself that my desire for God, which can often be so weak, or I just don't even pay attention to it. I just wander all my life that in this moment, I understand what desire really is. And I just kind of center myself and say, God, more than this, I desire you. Take away all this stuff 
stuff, the comforts, the food, the the petty things, the things for my gut and my belly, the, the transitory things, the material things, more than all that, that stuff that, I, that I'm consumed with on a daily basis, I really desire you. And fasting more than anything else just cuts right to the, the, the heart of it all and gets us to begin asking and to think about the right kind of questions. Um, we have this book at the book cart, A Hunger for God, and if if you really want God, want to begin pursuing God in a way that's just like, man, that is all I'm after. And I want to read things and I want to try spiritual discipline. I just want God. Then go pick up that book and it will help you there. The first thing was ask the right questions. And fasting is the best, best thing I know of to teach us how to ask the right questions. The second thing is create space for, our, for your Christianity. Create, we need to create space for our Christianity. We, uh, we're all experts in what it is we want. And we kind of typically begin to order and structure our life around what comes natural or what feels important or what feels urgent. And the spiritual things never really jump in at that kind of level, that kind of pressure. So what begins to happen is the big chunks of our time are ordered for circumstantial stuff and then we try and squeeze God into into the cracks in between taking our kids to soccer games, in between keeping up with emails or Facebook or whatever and then we try and slip God in and the question really becomes what are your greatest addictions in life what are the deepest ruts the things that you can't go a day without doing you need them i i mean i I go to cnn.com and then yahoo i don't know why those two started like four years ago and every day i gotta go to cnn.com and then yahoo or i begin to feel tense like i really have no idea what's going on in the world since yesterday right it's a rut it's a groove cut into my life. It's a habit of mine that is deep. It owns me. If I go a little while without it, it's like a crackhead without his fix. And I'm right back to CNN. It's a groove cut in my life. What are the grooves in your life? If you miss American Idol, I mean, you catch it on Tuesday night, but boy, if you miss the results show on Wednesday night, I mean, do you really just lose it? like going to a depression for half the week. Um, if you were to not see the, the finale of, of Lost, would your life be imbalanced somehow because you're, you so need it? Um, what are the, the grooves in our life? And I think we have to step back and say, we've cut a lot of grooves in our life. And we are slave to them. We we will, we will find a way to make those grooves a part of our day. Have we created space for our Christianity first? Are those the biggest grooves? Are those the deepest grooves? Are those the, those the grooves that define us day in and day out, week in and week out? I, uh, one of the most fascinating things that's happened to me in the last year is, if you remember the Congo Benefit concert we did, uh, a good friend of ours from Congo named Marcel Sorabungu um, came 
and he spoke at church and he spoke at the, the Congo Benefit concert. And he is a pastor from Goma in Congo and he works for World Relief doing food distribution, okay? Works nonstop. I think he has eight kids, five of them natural, I think a couple adopted kids. Um, works, has needs, uh, I mean, just tirelessly goes. So he's here and Matt and I are driving him around one day and I get this idea in my head. Um, I was like, you know what would be really cool? I just think this would be so cool. What a great way to bless this guy. Let's take him to Costco and tell him, pick something and, and, uh, and we'll get it for you. You can take it back. Pick something for your wife, you know, pick a gadget, pick whatever. So we walk, we walk into Costco with this pastor from, from uh, the Congo. And he, he just walks slowly, <laughs> methodically. Uh, I mean, can you imagine that? And, and through the gadgets and all that, and we, we talk about how there's clothes over there. And he goes and he uh, looks at the clothes literally for like 20 minutes, examining them, um, thinking about his wife, maybe bring something back for his wife. And after about 20 minutes, um, he kind of put down some things that he'd be, you know, he, he kept moving from one thing to the next. And he kind of just came back over to us he says uh, okay and and we're just like well did you not find anything he goes no these clothes would be too hot in the Congo uh, and it's okay what, okay what do you mean it's okay well I mean do you want to walk back there or walk over here the, this is what they sell here they, they have vitamins over there like you know I mean, what, what do you want um, we talked for a little bit and he kind of took it all in and then about five minutes later we walked out of Costco and Marcel, our friend from Congo, had found nothing that he felt he needed so bad that, that he would have us buy it to take back to, to Congo. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard of anyone going in Costco and not buying anything. <laughs> I mean, there's subliminal messages all over that place. It's like mind games and control games, and, and you walk out of there with with stuff you didn't even know existed, let alone you needed. Um, and if you make it that far, you're going to get a hot dog. Right? Um, I, got, I got in big trouble. Like our, our like first year that we were, um, after we had Mary Joy, like our oldest kid, on Mother's Day, I took Tamara to Costco for a hot dog. And I, I, was, I thought it was like super great. And then all these women on staff at the church I worked found out about it. And they, they really thought poorly of me. Um, you're not going to make it past the, the hot dog, at least. But our friend from Congo didn't get anything in Costco. Create space for our Christianity. We are so material. We are so material that we don't even, we don't even, we don't even get it. Um, and the thing I'm beginning to realize and I'm trying to repent of is that as a church planter, as a pastor, I can, I can easily fall into this rut of, of trying to make Antioch so, like, cool or so desirous that people would value it Based on what? Based on me 
meeting or us meeting your felt needs. That we can design this whole church as if everyone is so immature as to just think out of their belly and their desires and, and not really go deeper than that and say this church, if it's going to be church, has to be something so much more than that. That it's a two-way street, that it's, it's a body that's got interdependence and collaboration built into it, that there's a, a give and a take, that if we're going to change the world as a group of 500 people, it wouldn't be because we put on great programs and you guys come and like them. It would be because there's 500 people that are radically sold out to ministry and serving and giving their life away. And think about it. Are we going to make an impact for the kingdom because 500 people get their bellies filled? I mean, it's illogical, isn't it? And we wonder why the church maybe doesn't make a bigger impact in America than, than it does. If we're going to change the world as a church, it's going to be because all of this social capital, intellectual capital, financial capital, creative capital, all of this potential right here is radically and, and maturely sold out to God and has these deep grooves cut in their life. They've created space for Christianity and we together are laboring and working. And, and it's not just that we come to Antioch because it has great programs. So forgive me, but I feel like um, I'm weak and, and a lot of times I get caught up in this game of trying to please. And what I have to keep coming back to is realizing that if half of you left today, it doesn't really matter if you weren't going to serve or weren't going to give or weren't going to love or weren't going to try to involve or engage yourself in this body. It's just... It wouldn't matter. So what really does matter is that we slowly focus on uh, the heart of Antioch. This group, this core that that beats, that, that, that is alive, that invites people to lunch after church, that jumps in where they see a need, that wants to know what's going on so that they can help out where appropriate, that has gifts to bring, that, that even lets this church in some, sense ex, in some sense extend through them and send them out to places to do and to be. And to, um, I think that's what God really wants. In John 6, that's what it seems like Jesus really did. Uh, that there's something so beautiful if we all create space for Christianity, for obedience, for church, for each other, for ministry and service, that, that those things would be a bigger deal than American Idol. Would we ever walk into Costco and just not need anything? Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 17 kind of comes back to this whole idea of the inner self. It says, so we do not lose heart Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What are we really sold out to? Brennan Manning said this. He said, uh, the temptation of the age is to look good without being good. 
We want the long-term happiness and joy and blessing without having to go to the dentist. It's to look good without being good. Uh, The last thing here, and we're going to do this one quickly, is the discipline of thanksgiving. The first was ask the right questions. The second was make space, allow for ruts and grooves and addictions to grow up around your Christianity. Make space for Christianity. The last is the discipline of thanksgiving. Last week I talked about not having a request-based relationship with God. It's purely driven by our requests for God and we make him in some sense the handmaiden of our desires. Does that make sense? And somebody asked me in Redux, which is the Q&A service afterwards, Ken, okay, you said don't, don't have a request-based relationship with God, but what about when it says to make requests to God? Very perceptive question. And the answer really is this. We are commanded, we are supposed to have this discipline of thanksgiving. So uh, it says in, in Philippians to make your request known to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. So present your request to God with thanksgiving. In Thessalonians it says, um, pray without ceasing, be joyful always and pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. Jesus, half the times he prayed publicly, was just giving thanks to God for what God had supplied. And when he really wanted to talk about other things to God, he would do that in private. Half of his public prayers were about giving thanks. And the idea is that when we, when we realize that God has asked things of us and, and that we're supposed to be servants like, he was, like Christ was a servant, then when we come to God, we come to him with our requests But even if he doesn't answer that, if he doesn't answer that, we still respect him. We still have him in this place. We have this thanksgiving for all he is, all he's done. And we make a request known. God says, no, okay. Now, if we have just a request-based relationship with God, if the waitress doesn't give me what I like at the restaurant, I'm either going to leave or I'm going to try and denigrate that waitress by like, doing a bad comment card or like not tipping God. Bad God, you know, like you didn't serve me, right? See the difference between a request-based relationship? If somebody doesn't give you what they're supposed to do at the gas station, at the coffee shop, the plumber, you're not going to stay in that relationship. You're going to break that relationship because it exists purely to meet that request. Our relationship with God is not just a request-based relationship. It's a relationship of value and, and, and priority and desire and heart and passion and love. And we have all this thanksgiving. And so we make our requests with thanksgiving. And if God says, no, you know what? We're okay. We're still okay. Because our relationship with God isn't grounded upon. It doesn't depend upon him doing everything that we ask or we need. It's amazing to me. Um, when we were in Haiti this week, and, and by the way, I, I mean, I just want you to think about that for a second. Do you know that scripture commands you to be thankful? That part of obedience is learning and wrestling with gratitude and, and being thankful? Because if we don't find our way to that position, then we don't understand God rightly. If there's nothing to be thankful for in our minds, uh, in our feelings, in our emotions, if we can't have any gratitude, that means there's something wrong in the way we're seeing God. So we are commanded to wrestle our way to 
thanksgiving and gratitude. Down in Haiti this week, everywhere we went, they sang hymns. It's crazy. We went to this village where just completely wiped out. We interviewed this little girl that had lost her arm and talking to, to everybody. It's all rubble. Their latrines even broke down except for one. And there's 4,000 people that poop in a bag at night because they're so embarrassed and then drop it off during the day. And this, the one hole, only one hole that remains. And now with the rainy season coming, okay. And, uh, and they're singing the whole time, um, it is well. We went to this other lunch and they were singing, um, holy, holy, holy. Uh, and then we ended up at this, what touched me the most is we ended up at this, uh, there's a little picture of it, this meeting in this church, this really nice church that hadn't been destroyed, of orphans and vulnerable children. So we're there and, and we met this little girl. Uh, she had lost her dad 10 years ago, was living with her mom. She came home from school the day of the earthquake, came home, walked into her house, talked to her mom for 20 minutes, turned to go out and play, and no sooner had she been out to play for a few moments, the earthquake started. She turned back to see her house collapse on her mom, killing her mom. She raised her hand to be able to tell us this story, and the whole time she was choking back tears and then went to her seat and just sobbed. And what was amazing about this is these kids, these orphans and vulnerable children that were there for 25 minutes saying, um, give thanks with a grateful heart. They sang this praise chorus in Creole over and over and over again. And I just thought to myself, when we sing, I, I think our bellies are so full that it, it, we just, there's nothing real, we just never get to that point where the passion and the desire and the need and the hunger for God and the gratitude for the spiritual things that we have is ever so high that singing is just everything we have. I think we just, go, we're just so full. So you put God in front of us and it's like um, somebody bringing in McDonald's after you've just eaten Thanksgiving dinner and it's like, yeah, it just doesn't do it for me. And God is there and he's, he's near to us and we're just so full that we never really realize the hunger that we ought to have for a God who is so big that gives us so much that we can be thankful for. If these orphans can sing that 25 minutes over and over, um, maybe we can find some things to be thankful of. Maybe we can have the discipline of thanksgiving. So let's ask the right questions. Let's make room for, for Christianity, for Christ. Let's learn the discipline of thanksgiving and 